step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio, broadcasting from an undisclosed location here in Washington, D.C. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me as they do every Tuesday. Well, there's only one joining me today. Uh, could be more, but he's always good discussion with the man that is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He has served at last count under four presidents, longtime Senate staffer and longtime Washington insider, the man we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And joining us on the line, who kind of keeps us with adult supervision, she is the one we know as our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. Audrey, how's things with you, ma'am? Things are going well. Good. All right, we're putting you back on mute. <laughs> Thanks. So anyway, anyway, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a light discussion. Hopefully, uh, Dan uh, Dan Lipner will join us. I know that uh, Sharmila has uh, a previous engagement, as does Admiral Ken. So it looks like it's going to be an intimate discussion. You and me. We will open up the phone lines today. If you would like to ask uh, Alan and I any questions, you can dial in. That that. Call in number 657-383-0419. Again, 657-383-0419 if you'd like to join the discussion today on Backroom Politics. We have a lot to get to. Let's start with the breaking news. Uh, Breaking news out of Pyongyang. Uh, The discussions with the North and South on the Korean Peninsula scheduled for tomorrow have been suspended. Apparently, the government in Pyongyang took offense to a South Korean and U.S. Air Force joint military exercise that was taking place in the South. According to, according to uh, several uh, sources, the, uh, wrote the, the North Korean news agency has pretty much come out and stated that this is a flagrant attempt to uh, flaunt military might and prepare for invading the North. Which obviously is a, which is obviously uh, something that is of concern. According to the state-run Central News Agency, this operation called Max Thunder uh, is a rehearsal, quote unquote, is a rehearsal for an invasion of the North and a provocation amid warming inter-Korean ties. Now, the Central News Agency in North Korea has also stated that they are threatening to uh, cancel the upcoming summit on June 12th in Singapore with President Donald Trump. Uh, This kind of throws a wrench to the works. What everybody's trying to figure out, Alan Moore, is is this just political drama? Is this another kabuki dance being done by 
Kim Jong-un and the North Koreans? Or is this something that we can expect that they would, at the last minute, just pull the carpet out from under us and they look powerful and mighty to their people and to the region? Well, I, yeah, I don't know that that they look powerful and mighty. I think that, that they felt, felt like... Uh, uh, they've made some gestures uh, that are, you know, of some significance. They have constantly talked about what they consider to be provocative joint um, exercises with the South Koreans. I think they had some hope that we might cancel or postpone that. The fact that we didn't put some pressure on them to take some kind of action. Um, I think that uh, uh I, I don't expect the meeting to be all of a sudden canceled. Um, uh, so uh, I, I just, I think that they just felt like they had to, to do and say something in light of, uh, a, again, what they consider to be highly provocative joint exercises. But, but here's, what, here's what gets me about this, Alan, is that, you know, it, it, it's not like uh, the central government in Pyongyang didn't know that this was happening. I mean, you pretty much could Google Max Thunder and find out, uh, you know, the basic uh, understanding of the operation. What I don't get is why all of a sudden they grasping their chest and going, how dare you? I mean, is this just to save face in Pyongyang? I I think it is all about face. um, But um uh, but I'll be surprised if they really do pull out of the uh, of the summit. You know, they knew this was going to happen um or it was scheduled to happen. I think they had some hope that maybe maybe just maybe it wouldn't happen and then when it did they thought, well, what do we do? How about threaten to cancel? They didn't cancel. They've threatened to cancel so they just you know i I think it's i I think they want to go ahead with this but they didn't want to just stand idly by and say nothing uh in response so that that's my hunch but you know with with uh with kim jong-un uh you can you can get into real trouble when you try to uh uh, predict what they are or are not going to do it's a little bit like trying to predict what uh, President Trump might do if provoked. Right. So we'll see. This, we'll see. This is put, I, put the South I don't expect them to cancel. Does this put, though, the South Korean government in kind of an awkward position, almost having to uh, pick which is their favorite child? No, 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 no. They Believe me, they <laughs> they know that they have to have us. They want to have North Korea. They have to have America. So um they they're not what we don't know what we don't know is what might what kind of efforts might have occurred um by the south koreans um uh and uh, in, in trying to maybe postpone we don't know we'll probably learn but we don't know um right, right. you know we're we're not dealing we're not dealing with a predictable reliable established uh, uh partner in uh, in North Korea. So uh, you know we've had this thought, we've had this breakthrough, we've had uh, this interesting potential opportunity 
Um, we also have the, 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 the real world of the last uh, uh, 60 plus years. So um, we'll, uh, I, I think, I think they felt, as I said, that they couldn't just stand idly by and pretend that something they care about enormously is happening and not say something. So that's yeah. why I see a threat uh, to cancel uh, is very different than the decision to cancel. It, 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 while we're on the topic of North Korea, I you know it, this comes a day after the North Korean regime came out and stated that basically – uh, they were dismantling their large test site up in the northern part of the country along the Chinese. Uh, there's been speculation through several sources that there's a uh, this is a situation where uh, the plant itself, some are speculating there may be some intelligence that's out there that the plant itself might have failed, that there might have been a major catastrophe and that, in fact, this symbolic dismantling is actually an emergency shutdown. Uh, is, there, is that a possibility that this symbolic shutdown could be a bigger problem for the North Koreans, that this test site may have gotten out of hand? Absolutely. Um, th- there was all this, uh, this satellite evidence uh, that, that we've talked about in the past and that was, that was out there uh that that suggested that there was catastrophic uh damage at that site after multiple uh tests um, and so you know we were we were speculating before that uh that it was probably an unsalvageable site there might be leaks of uh of radioactive uh, material into the atmosphere, uh, creating a, a special problems for the uh, the Korean people and for its immediate neighbor, neighbors like China. Um, so down uh, that site may be no more significant than if your house burned down and you said, we're shutting down our house. Um, we're going to lock the door. Yep. And it's all it's all done. Your car got wrecked, and you said we're gonna we're gonna get rid of our car. Um, so uh, I, I wouldn't, you know. I think it was it was useful that they talked about it, even though I didn't see much to it uh, because of this evidence of significant uh, damage. Yeah, Alan. You know, you kind of been an observer of the situation on the Korean Peninsula, you know, it, it, it seems strange that, you know, right now the warming on the Korean Peninsula, there's a bigger chance that we're going to see peace on the Korean Peninsula than we will in the Middle East, even though that the Middle East has been a focal point of peace efforts from governments going all the way back to even uh, the Truman administration. It, are, are we being realistic at the expectation that we could see true peace on the North Korean Peninsula, particularly with uh, some, of the, some of the intelligence that we're seeing as far as the catastrophic failure at the test site, the economic issues that Kim Jong-un is dealing with internally? Uh, 
is peace a reality on the North Korean on, on the Korean Peninsula? And dare well, I say to you, oh, sorry, unification. So <laughs> things are changing in Korea, at least on the surface, um, about as fast as they've been changing uh, uh, since uh, since President Trump was elected, um, or since he was running for the nomination. We're, we're turning around with great surprise at every turn. This uh, the North Korea situation pivoted remarkably fast, um, and we can't ignore history. We have to be skeptical on the one hand. On the other hand, as we talked about last week, um, we, would be, we, we would be remiss not to explore what may well be, may well be uh, a genuine offer uh, of change. Uh, and I don't know if it's real. Um, I hope it's real. But who knows, uh, given the history? So we're just trying to figure that out. Let me ask this question, though, because, you know, the the one thing that comes to mind is the statement that uh, came out of uh, Mike Pompeo's recent trip to Pyongyang, uh, where he did bring back three of the prisoners. You know, Trump and the Trump administration likes to talk a big game. They like to thump their chest that, you know, I am the great negotiator. Look at what I did. But at the same time, you know, we hear Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump saying that we're going to help North Korea rebuild its economy. We're, you know, that uh, the North Korean regime was gracious and kind to let these three prisoners uh, who were being illegally held by all standards of international law. Uh, it, it, it strikes me as odd that, you know, can we in fact thump our chest and kowtow to Pyongyang, or are we really walking a tight balancing act right now? Well, I, I don't. As we talked about last week, how much how much are are we really risking here? Um, last week there was there was some discuss discussion of whether we were being fooled, and uh, and I was arguing then that 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 nobody uh, on our side thinks this is by any stretch a done deal, um, but and I was arguing before, and I still believe that we aren't. We weren't giving up that much, uh, given the potential opportunity here. And then days later, three uh, hostages uh, are released to the Secretary of State. That was leverage that we cared about. That was leverage that the North Koreans understood we cared about. Um, And they gave them up. Um, And for me, that was further cause of hope. It was like, okay, We've agreed to a meeting. That would be a that would be a big deal. That would be uh, uh, an elevation, if you will, of North Korea and its leadership to simply sit down with them. I felt, continue to feel, that it was worth doing. We've already uh, gotten some fruit from that. Um, I don't know what's going to come of all of this. We talk about denuclearization, and we sit there hoping that. We might be able to wipe all nuclear weapons uh, uh, off the peninsula, all enriched uranium off the peninsula. 
Um, I don't know if that's uh, uh, realistic or not, but I think it's but, but, smart of us to find Alan, out. Yeah, but Alan, I, I get the impression that we're we're playing a really dangerous game of semantics as far as what is denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Um, you know, how how do we claim, or is there a victory to be claimed in denuclearizing, and who is the gold standard for saying, yep, peninsula is denuclearized? Well, this is, this is what negotiations are all about. Um, normally, of course, um, we we uh, we have a lot of preliminary meetings and we have a pretty good understanding of where things are going and and you bring in your your principles to bless a deal that has been working down argued back and forth vetted um, and they come in to uh, sign the papers this is not one of those. This is uh, this is a, a potential negotiation among two unpredictable, headstrong, relatively inexperienced uh, in international affairs uh, principles, and they this could blow up in everybody's face soon or over time, or who knows, lead to something that was uh, uh, not really envisioned at all even six months ago. So is this, is this something that we involve the, possibly the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA? Well, sure. I mean, if, 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 if part of the deal has, it, it, it has to do with um, removing things that already exist, um, or showing us the things we ex- suspect exist but aren't absolutely certain, meaning on-site inspections, um, presumably if they agree to scale back their activity, eliminate their activity, eliminate certain c- capabilities, then we need to be able to verify it. And uh, I think everyone understands uh, everyone understands that. Um, and... Uh, we're not going to simply take them by take them at their word. Uh, we that we we've tried that in the past, um, and then found ourselves uh, being arguably uh, lied to, taken advantage of, and so on. So it, the, the IEA would be the likely logical group to do inspections if that's the rate the, the route we take. But if we go if we go with the IAEA, let's say. Is there a possibility? Because you know, every time I hear about you know bringing in the International Atomic Energy Agency and doing uh, verifications or doing inspections on that type of level, all I remember is the fiasco with Hans Blix and his teams in Iraq. Uh, I mean, we we were playing a shell game basically in Iraq and doing it a lot in the blind. Is this something that the IAEA has credibility still to this day that they can do it, do it effectively, and have the trust of the global community that 
the North Koreans are going to play along. So I think that that uh, the IAEA is the best we've got. I think they have established credibility. I think they've they're the, they're the group that that has uh, has done the main work in Iran. And remember, the the Iran deal went south not because the Iranians weren't living up to their end of the agreement with regard to nuclear uh, enrichment, um, uh, but it went awry because the president decided that it was a bad deal at the get-go, and notwithstanding the fact that they appear to be up uh, living up to their end of the bargain, it was a bad bargain, and the United States pulled out. The president signaled that he was going to do that for a long time. Uh, a lot of us felt that he should have waited, that he should have worked with his uh, with 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 America's allies, the other partners to the to the JCPOA. Um, the president decided not to do that, and now we're dealing with a world of uncertainty uh, vis-a-vis Iran. But the IAEA was the international organization that was going in there. It had pretty good access. It didn't access was a bit of an issue because we had to give advanced warning, and the argument went, well, if you 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 can't go onto military installations, they're probably hiding stuff on military installations. Um, but that wasn't the, the 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 main part of the problem with with uh, the Iran deal and that 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 led the president uh, to give it up. So if if we cut a deal with North Korea then someone will have to be going to make site visits. And the IAEA is the one organization with knowledge, experience, a reasonable amount of credibility. So I would expect they would be the uh, called in to take to, to play that role. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, one last question before we go to break, Alan. And I, I want to look at this. Um, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping uh, had a meeting with uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just days before the announcement of the final location of the summit. Big question here is, what is the role of China in all of this? Are they the honest broker in this deal, Are, or are, you know what is their interest, and in, in how much can they push the envelope in getting North Korea to the table? China's key. China is the most important player. China is more important than South Korea. China is more important than the United States because China is the economic lifeline that North Korea relies upon. It is the border over which goods move from China to North Korea to to keep this fragile economy alive it's the it uh, korea produces um coal and not a lot else that the world is interested in and china is its market and china uh began to tighten its the access to to uh, the chinese markets for uh north korean coal some months ago contributing almost certainly to the to the pressure on uh uh on the north koreans to come around and say, 
you know, I think we've proven that we can build a build a weapon. We've proven we can build uh, ballistic missile systems that 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 conceivably could deliver such a weapon. Although the two were never melded together, um, as far as we know, um, this is all about China. China, um, it's well, it's all about I mean, China in in, in, in in making the sanctions work. It's also though uh, something that. North Korea is desperate to, or increasingly interested in, maybe not desperate, in joining a larger family of nations, establishing some relations with other countries, opening up its uh, its borders, opening up its economy potentially. We'll see. But they have gone their own way for a long, long time. Got a uh, a leader who traveled to China. He he was schooled in Switzerland. Um, he presumably has access to uh, himself, uh, to the Internet, to movies. He's got some sense of what's uh, going on in the rest of the world, including in South Korea, and realizes that he's sitting on top of a very backward country. He does not want to right. give up his his power, but he would like to, to uh, improve the the economic stature of the country he leads. And hey, for all I know, he'd really like to do something for the Korean people. Um, uh, they may venerate him, but uh, there have to be voices of dissent um, that uh, uh, that he would be aware of. Why wouldn't there be voices of dissent when you when you uh, when there when there is some awareness among among a population of the world outside right. and all the things that are denied you and yours. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. We're going to come up, we're coming up on the break right now. And by the way, we're going to be talking about China here later on in the program as Donald Trump tries to make China great again. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we're going to talk about the continuing developing story coming out of the Middle East. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the situation we've opened up officially our embassy in Jerusalem, recognizing that city as the true seat of government of the Israeli state, causing dozens of deaths in conflict between the Israeli Defense Forces and uh, Palestinian uprising. Is this the new Antifada? We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
Backroom Politics. And we're back. Oh, there we go. little bit of a thunder roll. Uh, we're back with uh, the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., at a undisclosed location. Joining me as he does every Tuesday, he is the Honorable Alan Moore. Working the board today is our assistant producer, Audrey Howerton, up at her undisclosed location in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. That being said, uh, let's talk a little bit about the ongoing situation, the developing situation in the Middle East. Uh, As President Trump had yesterday, the U.S. government officially opened its, uh, its embassy to the Israeli state in Jerusalem, basically converting the what was the consulate in Jerusalem to the full-blown embassy, basically moving the ambassador, the charge affairs, and embassy leadership to Jerusalem uh, right now from Tel Aviv. Uh, it has sparked a lot of controversy. It was a, in my opinion, it was a decision made in a vacuum. It was a decision that was not well thought out. And many, many issues coming as a result of this. Uh, President Erdogan, the head of, the president of Turkey, has threatened to uh, discharge or recall, rather, his diplomats from both Washington and Tel Aviv as a result of this uh, opening in Jerusalem. Uh, Erdogan has also gone so far, according to several sources, as to threatening to pull out of NATO because of this decision. Uh, this is a decision that has been uh, has drawn the ire of many of our uh, allies, including uh, the British and the French. UK Middle East Minister Alistair Burke from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, said that, quote, we will not waver from our support for Israel's right to defend its borders, but the large volume of live fire is extremely concerning. We continue to implore Israel to show greater restraint. The U.K. supports the Palestinians' right to protest, but these protests must be peaceful. Uh, Alistair Burt's talking about the ongoing and up, the ongoing violence that's happening in the Gaza Strip and on the West Bank as a result of not only the of this embassy, but also just, uh, celebrating the seven, today marks the 70th anniversary of the founding of the state of Israel. Uh, it is really a difficult, difficult situation. In the video that President Trump gave, he was not there in attendance. Instead, he sent uh, Javanka, both Jared and Ivanka, as well as Secretary Mnuchin, Secretary of the Treasury, as well as a delegation of a few members of Congress, including uh, Ted Cruz, because when you think Israel, you think Ted Cruz, uh, and uh, several other members of Congress as part of the official delegation. But during his video presentation, which he gave from the Oval Office, he said, quote, today Jerusalem is the seat of Israel's government. It is the home of the Israeli legislature and the Israeli Supreme Court and the Israel's prime minister and president. Israel is a sovereign nation with the right, like every other sovereign nation, to determine its own capital. Yet for many years, 
we fail to acknowledge the obvious. The plain reality, the plain reality is that Israel's capital is Jerusalem. As I said in December, our greatest hope is for peace. Um, peace is not what they're getting right now, Alan Moore. Uh, as of last count, over 60 have been confirmed dead in the West Bank as a result of ongoing violence between Israeli forces and protesters on, uh, from Palestine. So many things to start with. Let me just start off with the big 50,000-foot level question to you, Alan. How big of a mistake was this? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. We all thought it was a mistake. Uh, there was nobody on this program uh, in the past that thought this was a good idea. Um, uh, having said that, um, it, it, it mainly because we thought it was too risky, that we thought that um, uh, that that there might well be uh, demonstrations and complications in uh, uh, in the relationship with um, uh, uh, with us and the and the other part of the other players in uh, in uh, in that region. Um, if if you're going to have peace. It's not just the U.S. and uh, Israel coming to some kind of an agreement. You need the Palestinians. And the thing we've had, we've had multiple presidents, Republicans and, Republicans and Democrats, formally saying that we were going to move, that it was our intention to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Um, and then every time we've had a president elected who's made these kinds of promises, uh, or commitments, um, they have concluded that it was not in our interests, the U.S. interests, or the region's interests at that point in time to go ahead and do this. So here we have a president who has tried to put a high premium on uh, fulfilling the campaign promises. Whether or not people really supported those promises, uh, that's a whole different interesting question. Um, I mean, on the one hand, who doesn't want uh, to elect political leaders who will keep their word? On the other hand, who doesn't want political leaders who are willing to look at the circumstances in the moment and decide whether something they campaigned on um, is, uh, is something better off postponed or modified? Uh, and, and what President Trump uh, decided to do in the case of of moving the embassy, uh, actually, curiously, in the same week of uh, fulfilling his promise to pull out of the Iran deal, is he's done both of them. Uh, they're provocative acts. They're risky acts. Um, and and unfortunately, this time, at least, uh, they are acts which led directly to bloodshed, loss of life, and something in the neighborhood of so far 2,700 people injured. Now, some of those injuries are, 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 are quite serious uh, injuries. We don't know about the numbers. They come from, uh, from the Palestinian side. For that matter, I don't know the, the number 58 dead. Uh, I don't know if that's been confirmed, but maybe it's more, maybe it's less. That's a lot of people to to die, 
um, uh, in this particular instance? Does it kill the potential for uh, some kind of agreement? Automatic, nothing kills things in this regard, but it, it appears to be a setback <clears throat> that we did not need, which was why we were all saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Well, he did it, and now we're going to see what happens, and we don't yeah, know Alan, what happens. Alan, here's, here's my problem with all this. Is it's the, I mean, look, let's call this what it is. This was placating to his base, a group of white evangelical Christians that were like, we're pro-Israel, we're pro-Israel, and absolutely Jerusalem is the head of the Israeli government or is, this, is the seat of the Israeli government. And God bless Donald Trump for doing this. It, it, it's almost like he's doing foreign affairs to placate his base as opposed to what actually makes sense and being an honest broker. I mean, not only have we lost credibility as, an, as a possible or potential honest broker between the Palestinians and the Israeli, in the Israelis, I mean, I, I mean, we might as well just put uh, Jared Kushner in a pink tutu and have him dance the dance of the sugar plum fairies along the border with Gaza. It's going to be just as effective as putting him in a room trying to negotiate a peace deal with the Palestinians and the Israelis. We have no credibility anymore. Who takes up that slot? Pompeo, here's another job for you, buddy. Um, uh, it, 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 it arguably is – pardon me? I, I, how can Pompeo have have any credible standing when his boss is the one who pulled the trigger, for lack of a better term, on this really bad idea? We well, the, the entire uh, nation has no credibility or standing with the Palestinians. We how can we be an honest broker, even with Pompeo? So you, you, you were asking who now, and I say the guy who runs the State Department. Um, and and does, he have, does he have improved or reduced uh, standing and credibility after all of this? It's reduced. Um, he's a new person, uh, at, le- at least in his case. You, you were talking about Kushner, and, and Kushner was so much in the forefront of, of this, uh, this, op- this opening of <laughs> – this opening, I, I laugh. Uh, there's nothing to laugh about, but I, I laugh at the quote new embassy, which is basically uh, an old building that that we had that we we put we attached the sign of uh, embassy of the United States of America, and the only people from uh, from the U.S. embassy who are serving in Israel who are actually going to quote relocate unquote there are the ambassador and a few of his aides they will still spend most of their time i dare say in tel aviv where everyone else is but now we have the symbolism of an embassy which uh uh which is uh, a pre-existing building without enhanced security capacity uh or anything else it was a it, it was a it was an, a low a low budget way to do it, um, but now we will be we be, begin to figure out uh, unless we change our minds um, uh, how, what kind of a facility to build. I've seen numbers up in the one billion dollar range uh, to build a facility that would be able to house uh, the many people and to secure them. Um, 
So uh, having said that, this is not a nothing. This is not a trivial matter. This is a highly provocative uh, act. It is, uh, as, as we've all said, as I've said uh, plenty, and uh, it, it is the fulfillment of something that this president and prior presidents have said, we are going to do this. This president actually went ahead and did it. We're not, we can't be that surprised. And in terms of why he did it, well, I think one could say, why did he announce that he was going to do it? Well, some of the same reasons that previous presidents have. Why did he go ahead and do it? Because he's put a priority on delivering promises that he made. And notwithstanding the risks associated with, with doing that, the tragedy, I, I don't know about the ultimate effect on, on Mideastern peace. It's not like we were uh, uh, on a smooth road to solving all of the issues and making progress. My God, um, that's, uh, we, we would have had peace long ago. Um, what's tragic about this at this time is it, A, appears to be a setback from, from good relations that are required for these kinds of negotiations. And more to the point, there's this human tragedy this significant loss of life um, and mass numbers of injured persons that appear to be tied to this action. Um, that, is a, that, that, that is a human tragedy of real people in real time that's uh, underway right now, and that makes your heart sick. Um, it makes you wonder, good God, I hope, I hope there's something that makes this worthwhile um uh, in in light of the tragic loss of life multiple lives that that uh uh that have occurred here does benjamin netanyahu have any culpability in all this well so he obviously was for this um but i personally don't think that he's the one who made it happen he certainly um he and the Saudis um, uh, certainly provide some cover to, to the president and allow the president to say, yeah, this is what we wanted. Um, but, but uh, uh, I, I don't, I, I don't attribute the, the ultimate act to, uh, to, to Netanyahu. Now there may be, uh, there may be some, some important players in the U S uh, in the United States were big supporters of Israel, um, the supporters of uh, of Republicans. I think that the the, the well-known uh, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Nevada um, real estate and gambling mogul Sheldon Adelson and his wife were present uh, for the for the grand opening. Um, but I don't blame any of uh, any of them. Somewhere along the line. In the camp, in the course of the campaign, President Trump joined a pre-existing chorus. Joined a pre-existing chorus to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. This president has said, "I make those promises. I want to deliver those promises. This is one I can do. This is one I can deliver." There are some promises he made. That he tried and failed. He tried to repeal and replace Obamacare. Didn't happen. He tried. Um, and uh, 
the, the, the irony in all of this is that who knows how many pre, how many promises uh, this president or other presidents or presidential candidates made. Um, it's not like all of his voters said, we want you to do all those things you said you were going to do. Many, many, many of President Trump's voters couldn't care less about where the U.S. Embassy is in Israel. Couldn't care less about whether we pull out of the Iran deal, stay in the Iran deal, talk to our allies about changing the Iran deal. But President Trump, uh, and he got a lot of encouragement from this from the, the once present Steve Bannon, and I'm sure there are some others who are still there saying, whatever else you do, Mr. President, fulfill the, the promises you made. It will, it will, it will, it will, uh, you, you will do well by setting yourself apart, by, by doing things, even if they're provocative and risky, and maybe even arguably contrary to U.S. interests, although, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, and so you, there we have hold it. On, let, me it interrupt, let, let me interrupt, Alan. Yeah. Do you think that opening the embassy in Jerusalem supports or is counteractive to U.S. interests? Well, our interests at this point in time. But I don't know that 100%. I believe that. I have said that. I continue to believe that. I look at what's gone on there. I look at what what, uh, the Palestinian reaction is, both sort of diplomatically. We're not, you know, we're we're not going to sit down. We're not going to talk. And and that's totally to be expected. Um, Let's uh, look at what's going on six months from now. But I see this tragedy, and I don't see how anybody could say that what we've done so far is worth 58 human lives, 2,700 or more injuries. Um, we're, we're, we're in a, in, in a serious deficit at this point in terms of you know, whatever benefit there might be to saying we keep our word looking at, at uh, these losses in, in, uh, in human life and in, in diplomacy and stressing uh, uh, alliances um, with our historical allies. Let me ask you this question. I mean, because we, we've already pissed off pretty much every major ally that we have, not only in the region. I mean, the Jordanians are furious. Our NATO partners are furious. Um, it, there are so many bad ideas. It, you know, my fear is is that, you know, I look at the two big decisions that Donald Trump has made in that region, both of them driven by Benjamin Netanyahu, who arguably is the most right-wing head of state of Israel that we've seen. The concern I have is that we are driving our foreign policy in the Middle East based off of Bibi Netanyahu's advice. We, it, it, it's almost whatever he says goes with this president. And we have, and, and as a result, we're seeing what we're seeing today. You know, I would have to say this decision does not happen. This decision does not go forward. Menachem Begin is president or prime minister. Golda Meir, who was a true badass prime minister, who did not blink at anything, I think would have a problem with this decision. 
I think that there are so many, every other prime minister or president of the state of Israel would never have given the go-ahead. Bibi Netanyahu did it because he wants to thump his chest, and he wants to say, see, now you got not only us saying Jerusalem is, but I got the U.S. to back us up. That's a scary way to do foreign diplomacy based on Bibi Netanyahu, who, by the way, is in his own trouble and is not guaranteed that he'll finish out his term because of investigations against him. How do we do that, Alan? How do we do that? Well, okay, so so you're you're drawing a not uh, you know a not a, a not crazy assumption that that Netanyahu has had uh, a significant influence or too much influence um, in these particular events, and then you've speculated on what some dead people might have done. Um, I I don't have the vision into what they might have done. My view, though, about Netanyahu is. The guy likes to to be on his side of arguments and his side of things, but I don't believe that Netanyahu was calling the shots on either one of these. These were issues wow. that predated that predated President Trump's um, relationship with Netanyahu. He he had his instincts. He had arguments from uh, outside advisors. He went on the record pretty early on. On, on doing this in terms of the uh, moving the embassy. He was following the tradition of previous presidents in terms of saying he was going to do it. He just said, I'm not just going to talk about this stuff. I'm going to do this stuff. And lo and behold, he's done it. Right. As we, we said before with regard to the Iranian deal, he made it a, 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 you know, a litany every time he appeared at any campaign event to talk about the Iran deal as the worst deal he'd ever seen, he'd ever witnessed, he'd ever thought the U.S. was a part of. Um, and well, that's, joining us, that's, joining that's us on the, the line the, right now. Hold on. Joining us on the line right now, better late than never, he is the former Joe Biden political operative, longtime Democratic political pundit, and bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia, Dan Littnery Esquire. Daniel, what are your thoughts on this? Well, the it, it basically we we knew this was coming. So not so much the, the the moving of the embassy. While Trump not only took credit for that, he also apparently took credit for saving a billion dollars on it, which I'm not quite certain how how he was able to arrive at his impact on something that was well in process before he arrived in office. But that's this president. Uh, as far as the actual moving and exact capital what's the upside to the united states consistently as far as the geo global politics this president has shown no sign of understanding anything that pushing button a has consequences well beyond the 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 moment so i suspect the voices that were leading the charge that weren't actual policy experts were his son-in-law jared and Sheldon Adelson are probably the only two people domestically who had the president's ear to say this is a great idea, as as opposed to the actual policy experts who would point out that, yeah, this is going to inflame the issue, remove us as an honest broker for Middle East peace, which uh, the Palestinians are pretty much on the record saying, yeah, we officially no longer trust the United States but as an honest broker. So we all saw this coming. Um, as far as Netanyahu's 
position, yeah, he's been focused on this from the get-go. However, it's worth noting that Netanyahu has his own political problems, and I'm not talking about financial scandals. I'm talking just staying in office. The demographics being destiny, uh, Netanyahu built a coalition to stay in office with the more conservative ranks in Israeli politics. And and of those threats, those are folks who go straight to the Bible as far as Israel's right to exist and their their family size are huge. And unfortunately for all of us, the folks who are the extremists on both the Israeli and Palestinian side are both having demographic booms. So this is going to be a, a longer term issue. Dan, I want to ask but you. Also worth noting, but just, 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 as far as the the previous prime ministers, it's worth noting Ariel, Ariel Sharon was no shrinking violet, but even Ariel Sharon not only made a move for the building the wall, but also wanted conclusions to things so much so that he had to build a new party, the Kadima Party, out of whole cloth for folks who wanted to find a solution that worked. And Ariel Sharon actually deserved some credit for, for changing Israeli politics. Unfortunately, the again, not just seeing this in Israel, but in other places, the extremists on, on the more conservative side are harder to tame. But, but, but again, even Ariel Sharon knew that putting a series of embassies in Jerusalem was lighting the fuse on a powder keg. What is it that every prime minister and president of the state of Israel has seen and every American president, even though we say we're going, you know, we recognize Jerusalem, we can say we recognize Jerusalem all day long. That doesn't get 2,700 Palestinians injured and over and almost 60 Palestinians killed. Not to mention, we still haven't heard any of the casualties coming from IDF or from the Israeli health ministry as far as Israeli civilians that have been injured in all of this. You know, what is it that makes Bibi Netanyahu the ultimate soothsayer saying that this is a good idea when every other prime minister has said, you know what, maybe we shouldn't do that right now? Why now, I guess is the question. Well, no, I mean, every other Israeli prime minister would say it, but not necessarily mean it, just like every American president said, we're going to do this. But in six to 12 months, we got to look at it a little bit longer. And seriously, every six to 12 months, they need to look at it a little bit longer still. Uh, in most recent history, and it's actually been a while, that actually put Jerusalem on the table as a bargaining chip to actually make it the international city uh, that during the, the UN breakdown of the region that was Palestine is now Palestine and Israel, however you want to define it, uh, Ehud Barak actually put Jerusalem on the on the bargaining block, and in the phrase that has been used often, the Palestinian people never miss an opportunity to, to miss an opportunity. Inexplicably, uh, the then head of the uh, PLO, Yasser Arafat, didn't just say yes, uh, it, and so that was that was the biggest opportunity we had for on, on all fronts for some kind of final for some kind of solution that would allow for a Palestinian state, an Israeli state, and Jerusalem not to be taken by any of the many uh, religious interests that wanted to call it home. There was actually a moment in time where some one 
didn't rise to the occasion. And that's been pretty consistently the Palestinian failure. And now the Israelis are in a position because of their domestic politics to have far less of a position to negotiate since hardliners are much stronger than they once were. It's a bad situation. Alan Moore, are are we – have we in fact, as I stated or put it into perspective with Dan Lipner, have we in fact lit a powder keg in the Middle East that we're not going to be able to extinguish? I don't know. I mean, there's, it's been a powder keg. We've, we see violence up and down. This is one that I think we have to acknowledge is on us. Um, and, uh, uh, in a week or two weeks or three weeks or three months, um, We'll know whether the immediate response and the, these, these, this high rate of casualties, um, uh, we'll, we'll know what the death toll is, the injury toll in terms of uh, ongoing negotiations. It's not as though things were going swimmingly um, in, in, in uh, negotiations uh, over the past uh, 40 years. Um, and, and, uh, but having said that, you keep working at it. You, don't, you, you try to maintain uh, the ability to talk to both sides. You try to avoid appearing to uh, take a side in a big visible way that actually uh, ends up uh, uh, imposing some significant costs on one side uh, versus the other. So we thought it was a bad idea. Our fears are being borne out in this moment, in this period of time. Three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, I don't think we'll look back and say, wow, that turned out really well for us. But there's a chance. It's just the odds get longer and longer. Um, with uh, The odds got longer when we made the decision, when we have the event. Um, and, uh, you know, most of us are more cautious than that. We don't see... We, we see high risk and modest uh, potential for any gain, and and uh, and it's playing out that way. I mean, I mean, I mean, let's let's, let's call this what this is. I mean, this was arrogant. Has the, has the U.S.'s arrogance, has the Donald Trump administration's arrogance, possibly kick kickstarted the new Antifada? Alan Moore. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I. Uh, it, it's it, it's it's a lot harder now for for the Palestinians because they're so constrained to uh, uh, to do the kind of harm that they were able to do uh, a decade ago or whenever the the, the height of it was. Um, and and uh, uh, I just. Having said, I, I don't know. But when you when you lose when you lose people, when people get shot, when people die, um, that tends to trigger more people willing to give up their lives for the cause, rather than cause people to say, "Oh, maybe there's some chance for hope." But I don't know. Dan Lipner, same question to you: Have we kickstarted the new Intifada? Um, kickstarting suggests that you know the problems were had all gone away. The area has been challenging since 
well, for, for I don't know, up back to World War One, the Ottoman Empire. So the region has its problems. But I agree with Alan. Things have gotten more challenging for the Palestinians, not the least of which is all of their former allies who used to support them have other problems. Uh, even the, the Saudis are now actually you know, willing to talk to Israel in part because they're all on the same side against Iran. So this is a former ally of the Palestinians who aren't so game to be spending their time for peoples that the Saudis never really cared about in the first place other than to so dissent. So, yeah, this but, but, is, again, kickstarting it isn't necessarily correct, but it's definitely – it didn't do anything to help the cause. But, he, but here's the thing, is, and, and, and here's my concern also, and, that's, and there's an aspect of this that I don't think we've, well, we've just scratched the surface on, it, not only by pulling out of the Iran deal and putting sanctions back on Iran. We've pretty much poked that sleeping bear. That bear wakes up, and they start flowing money, armament, manpower over to Hamas and Hezbollah into those pockets, we, still, we literally have created a domino effect that puts the powder keg at, you know, five minutes till midnight from just total catastrophic explosion, regardless of what the Saudis want, regardless of how peaceful the Jordanians want in the region. This is a series of just stupid events that could cause this very delicate time bomb in the Middle East to really just light up and explode. To me, I I guess the question is, now that we're no longer the honest broker, Dan Lipner, I'm going to ask you, who can possibly even consider putting this genie back in the bottle? I don't know. I say, I say we get the keys to be the honest broker, and uh, they can they can take charge. Who's that? Who's uh, that? Which is the? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of the Pacific Island countries. Is that New oh, Zealand that, that are the Kiwis? Yes, get the Kiwis. I mean, the, 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 you know, we 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 have a we, the, the 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 Palestinians. Are angry and and predictably so, um, but they don't have any other place turn. It, eventually, they're going to have to. You know, they're they're angry at the U.S., but they've been angry at the U.S. before. This is this is a symbolic uh, event that that's unnecessarily provocative, but it's not as though there's anybody that's going to replace the U.S. Uh, we're still in that position. Um, we've we've set back ourselves some indeterminate amount, but it's not as though now we're going to turn, to, as Dan suggested, to the Kiwis in New Zealand. Um, we'll it's there's nobody in Europe that's that's in a position uh, to step up, um, and uh, this is going to have to settle down, sort itself out, um, and uh, these these deaths tragically uh, were. Probably avoidable, and that is that's right. a burden that uh, right. uh, that America and its leadership uh, has to carry. Okay. Yeah, the bigger well, issue well, is the, 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 the region has the bigger problem with the other players that are. And again, this is the Saudis and the Iranians. If, if that kettle explodes and there's actually an arms race where we end up actually taking credit for 
the Iranians saying, all right, our nuclear game is back on the table, and the Saudis enter that game. Yeah, start investing in hybrid cars because oil prices are going to skyrocket because the entire region is going to be much more dangerous. Yeah, but but isn't it just – aren't we already kind of experiencing that now as long as the Iranians are using Hezbollah and and the rest of the Palestinian entities as their proxies in the region? No, I was about to say, you said the magic word, the proxy war. We've had proxy wars with the then-Soviet Union. We've had proxy – hell, we arguably have a proxy war going on with Russia – with the uh, the Russians that are in the region in Syria and the American forces, proxy wars are just that. While they can spin out of control, for the most part in history, they don't, since major powers want to very deliberately treat them like they are this external issue that really doesn't matter a whole lot. The problem is when it becomes not. Again, explicitly what both the Saudis and the Iranians are, are talking about. Alan Moore, you agree? Yeah, I, I think I think Dan made a really important point earlier too about about the Saudis and and how um they they now fear um uh Iran and as particularly a nuclear uh, nuclear armed Iran significantly more than they worry about Israel. Israel's a historic enemy. It's an easy uh, political um, uh, target, um, uh, but but uh, they've got uh, bigger bigger concerns when their arch enemy Iran is uh, is on the verge of, or was on the verge of, or is, is maybe no more than. It used to be a few weeks or months away and maybe now a year away from having a, a nuclear weapon that, that they might be willing to utilize in the region. Um, and, oh. and, and as Dan pointed out accurately, that the, the, the broader changes in the in Mideast politics created a bit of an opportunity here uh, that for the U.S. to take this provocative action with a somewhat reduced um, uh, probability of, of, of an explosion. Well, I want to let that be the last word. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how Trump's going to make China great again. This is Backroom Politics Live from the National Capital Region. I'm Blog Talk Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back in three minutes. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. There'll be no 
Well, as the fourth largest manufacturer of cell phones, it is also gotten a double hit because last uh, within the past 10 days, the Department of Defense has told its uh, base exchange operations to stop immediately the sale of any ZTE manufactured equipment. It is because of the fact, number one, ZTE back in March paid $1.2 billion in penalties to the Commerce Department when they ref- that they discovered that they were um, uh, that they were violating sanctions that had been put into place. And uh, also the fact that there has been a concern from the intelligence community that, in fact, that ZTE phones could be used to spy on American citizens that possess such equipment. Um, it is something that Marco Rubio has said, quote, the problem with ZTE is in jobs and trades. It's national security and espionage. We are crazy to allow them to operate in the U.S. without tighter restrictions, yet we want to make sure that they have enough jobs in China. Um, Alan Moore, as a former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs, um, am I high? Is, is this really happening? Well, <laughs> apparently. Um, and and I, I think I probably have more questions than answers. Uh, it, it's bizarre that the, the president who uh, he loves to bash foreign countries on matters of international trade has, has, has run hot and cold, but, but mostly uh, hot in a negative way uh, against China. Uh, and yet who touts his personal friendship um, with, with the Chinese leader Xi, uh, Xi um, has uh, appeared to have pulled a pivot here where we were sanctioning uh, this company um, and uh, apparently a conversation between the president and, uh, uh, and, and, the, and leader Xi um, uh, caused the president to say, gee, um, we, we need to rethink this a little bit. It's, it's, <laughs> it's had a huge negative impact in China. Uh, gosh, isn't that what we're, this is all about? But this company also uses a lot of uh, U.S. product in its uh, in its production. Well, fine, but is this coming as a new surprise? The thing, though, that you haven't mentioned yet that makes this look really, really awkward is that just at the same time that the president has done, if you if it's not about an about face, a quarter turn, shall we say? Um, uh, is that that we learn that the Chinese government has invested a half a billion billion dollars in a Singapore project that the Trump organization is involved in. Now, there's no there there's no clear evidence that these events are linked, but it looks about as bad as something <laughs> could look. Um, uh, because of the uh, because of the timing, so you've got no the president evidence. shifting his shifting his his rhetoric and views towards a, a, a big Chinese company for bad behavior, but he, and he's doing it at within within days of of uh, or uh, of a half a billion dollars going to an investment 
that involves uh, the Trump organization. Now that 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 project had been announced and was underway before, prior to the election, but the transfer of funds occurred this week. So it it, it I. I don't have the answer to what this is all about. Um, I, as I said, I've got more questions, but it looks about as bad as it can. It looks so bad on its face that it's probably something else. But I'd like to know. But here's here's what here's what boggles my mind. Two things. One is Wilbur Ross just. A, I mean, he's Statler and Waldorf combined. He said, and I quote, ZTE did do some inappropriate things. They've admitted to that. The question is, are there alternate remedies to the one that we had originally put forward, that being the $1.3 billion in fines against the company? And that's the area we will be exploring very, very promptly uh, this is a quote from the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross. Uh, Alan Moore, if you, are the, uh, if you are in your old role as, uh, as Undersecretary for International Affairs at Department of Commerce, does your head just explode at that comment, knowing what we know about ZTE and the blatant violations they did against the sanctions rule? Well, here again, you see, I I, I suffer from from a lack of uh, of, of information of exactly what what was found against them and exactly how the uh, the very very large fine of over a billion dollars how that how that was set, um, and you you kind of have to know how we came to be where we were, let's say two weeks ago, to have a better understanding of the appropriateness of re- taking another look. It does appear so. So you know, I just don't know all, all of that. Uh, I've never seen a fine of that size. It's not the normal kind of fine that would come out of a of a, a commerce department investigation. This is a fine that has this this extra impetus of uh, dealing with uh, with countries that you're that, uh, w- with whom it's illegal to to deal. Iran and North Korea. Um, so. It, it becomes an international uh, diplomacy issue as well as a kind of processes of of uh, the Commerce Department, U.S. international trade laws. Um, so, uh, but but what seems clear, it, it although it looks as though the president's got a, his own conflict of interest here because of this investment that I mentioned, um, uh, it, it what what it really looks like is a personal appeal from the Chinese leader saying, this is really important to me domestically. And I would really appreciate it if you could find a way to help me out. That's the kind of transactional conversation that President Trump thrives in. He figures in his own way of thinking, wow, if I can do a favor for for the Chinese, then I'm in a position to ask for something later. Let's do it. Not can we do it? What kinds of things might make sense? What are what's legal here? What's appropriate? But it's it's all very transactional. 
I want to say yes to him so that I'll have more leverage later. Alan, this isn't. I've never seen that kind of thing before. Yeah, but this isn't the corner newsstand. This is not the corner newsstand in Forest Hills, Queens. This is geopolitical negotiations and trade disputes on top of the fact we're dealing with possible national security implications here. What, what, What bugs me is two things. Number one, where is, you know, Donald Trump would literally use the phrase, we're not going to allow China to rape our country, which I thought was not only completely inappropriate, but over the top. But that's Donald Trump. The reality dictates that, you know, for somebody to do a complete, as you say, maybe a quarter turn, I would say a complete 180 on hard-nosed China. You know, the question comes up is, how does he do this and maintain the support of his base when he's more worried about creating jobs in China than he is about creating jobs here in America? Well, see, that's one of the narratives that's out there. Um, this, This other narrative, as I mentioned, is this investment in the Singapore company. We don't have we don't have all the information. It's it's a bizarre enough turn that um, I suspect that there's just more to it than meets the eye. Uh, among now, one thing that does meet the eye and it's hard to ignore is that uh, Secretary of Commerce uh, Wilbur Ross is sort of kicked to the side of the road here. The uh, uh, remember one one of the sanctions against ZTE that that the Commerce Department did impose is. Uh, blocking the, the the company ZTE from ex- getting access to U.S. technology. Well, that can be a killer for a company in a highly competitive environment um, uh, like like phone production and telecom. Um, uh, the 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 access to absolute up-to-date technology and then figuring out as these companies try to do how to incorporate it, how to do it more efficiently uh, and more cheaply um, uh, is, is where you, where you're constantly working to stay competitive um, uh, in this marketplace. And so what, what I think is, I, I think the fine was paid. I don't think this is about the fine. I think this is about these these other penalties of, in effect, making it more difficult for ZTE to to uh, to stay competitive by by having access or not having access to uh, the 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 ever changing uh, technology. Um, it, it's just a weird one, and it it it's. Uh, uh, it's not as though we're, we're sending jobs from the U.S. to China in this deal, but when the when when one of the arguments is this cost China a lot of jobs, it's pretty hard not to then say in favor of whom. If the jobs aren't going to China, where are they going? Are some of them coming to America? Is that a bad thing? Isn't that what President Trump talked about? On and on and on. But this president doesn't keep things connected in his mind. He doesn't think, gee, if I do 
A and B, that's going to conflict with C and B that I've talked about in the past. It's like, is A a good thing? Can that help me today? And, and, and am I going to earn some chips with this, uh, this powerful leader that I want to have a good relationship with? And I want to be able to say yes to him from time to because I want him to say yes to me down the road. It's this transactional presidency without a clear vision, without without a, a, a long-term strategy. You jump from issue to issue to issue. It's uh, he's been called, he's been called President Trump has a day trader. You 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 get in and out of the market today, and then tomorrow you do it again, and the next day you do it again. You don't have a long-term vision of where you're trying to go. You're trying to make a deal today that works today, a deal tomorrow that works tomorrow, and forget about or don't really focus on or think about or even comprehend the, the long term, the long game. Yeah, but here's, here's, here's the thing, though. When, you know, so President Z comes in and says, hey, look, we're losing a lot. We're hemorrhaging jobs at ZTE. You know, can you help out a brother? Can you spare a dime? You know, there are other – you know, like you said, you know, where are those jobs going? If they're leaving, you know, ZTE in China, where are they going? Are they going here to the U.S.? If not, are they going to manufacturers in allied countries? You look at uh, Nokia, Ericsson. Uh, you look at uh, even going to South Korea and possibly Samsung or LG. You know, it, it, at some point, we have to – you know, show some sort of continuity and strategy and not have this shoot from the hip and roll the dice foreign policy, that's going to get – that's not only going to screw with our economy in the long term, but I would go as so far as it is an endangerment to our national security. And I don't think I'm going too far on that, Alan. Do you? Well, I, I... – I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't get carried away draw, overdrawing conclusions about the the the, the China deal because because the, the more I the more I sort of understand it the more I realize that 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 Secretary Ross probably thinking that he was going to gain favor with the president by being particularly harsh on a Chinese <laughs> company was so harsh in the prohibitions in addition to the 1.2 billion dollar fine but. But so so tough in in uh, in penalties imposed on that company that people in the marketplace, people in the world of phone production, said this is a death sentence. If you can't access the latest technology for a for a time period of seven years, which I think was the maximum uh, penalty available to the secretary, which he chose to impose, right. Um, that, that prompted uh, ZTE to say, we are going, we, we are expecting to have to cease our major business operations. That's a huge deal. That, and, and, and I think at that point was, was where the Chinese uh, uh, leadership came to the president and said, these guys are going to have to shut down. That's, tens of thousands of employees in uh in China that's a big deal for us we think that the the the, the company has been penalized has, has been punished enough do you really are you really trying to shut them down and don't you realize that they do a lot of business with US companies purchase a lot of of uh 
of of supplies and materials and inputs from U.S. companies. And, and so it's not just it's not just us. It's not our business typically to impose penalties that shut people down. And and so what's what's happened with I think I think that that the sec that, that the Secretary of Commerce got out ahead of himself, thinking he was pleasing the president, only to <laughs> to find himself basically told, come up with something else. This is too harsh. Um, wow. So he's embarrassed, but but uh, but I, I'm not at all convinced that uh, that the president is wrong on this one. Given as, as the, the more I understand of what it was that that the, the penalty was that 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 was being imposed and what the implications were, we never should have yeah, got into yeah. that position. We're not talking to each other. We don't have a White House. We don't have a national security apparatus. We don't have an economic apparatus that allows these kinds of decisions to be vetted by all the folks who should be included and to consider what the ramifications might be. Okay, but Alan, here's here's the bigger concern. If you look at, let's say, for example, um, if you're if you are a uh, manufacturer a car plant or a Harley plant or even an electronics plant because believe it or not there are still electronics manufacturing going on here in the United States not much but still there if if you are part of that manufacturing sector and you voted for Trump because he's promising to bring all these jobs back to the United States and then I hear he's actually backing down and telling ZTE, a company that violated sanctions, a company that, if you listen to the intelligence community, poses a national security issue to uh, our telecom system. To me, I would be in an uproar at the White House. Where is the base now screaming, wait a minute? What about my jobs? Because if I'm an unemployed, you know, if I'm an unemployed assembly line worker and I'm making flat screen TVs or, or cell phones, and we're bailing out CTE, you, I would think that I'd be pissed. Am I out? Of, am I out yeah. in the field on this? Well, I, 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 you know, again, it, it's it's it, the devil's in the details here, and and I think that that the the that forgetting forgetting the the global politics and forgetting whether. The president uh, likes to do transactional stuff. Consider this. Consider the the, the possibility, and it and it, it, it. The more I learn about it, the more likely I think this is in fact the case. Is that it was a serious violation that ZTE did, among other things, lied to the U.S. government as it began to investigate. Right. Those are those are serious things. One point right. two billion dollar fine is no small slap of the wrist. What right. happened in addition to that was that Secretary Ross went to the full extent of his powers, apparently, apparently, by saying, not only are you fined um, and, and probably some sanctions for individuals in that company, but guess what? You no longer can access U.S. technology for seven years, and that may what that likely means is the component parts 
some of the key component parts of the most advanced phones that, that, that ZTE wants to produce in China are no longer going to be available to them. They can't get the best stuff for seven years, at which point they say, well, then we, we're going to be out of business. I don't think that the U.S. government necessarily – I think that, that Ross got out over his skis here, came up with a penalty that was like a death sentence to this very large company, and it was not that well understood. I don't think, as I say, that it was vetted inside the U.S. government to figure out whether the penalty was proportionate to the crime. And I think that, as I begin to understand it better, that a strong argument can be made that the penalty was disproportionate and that if we want to be seen as fair and transparent, then we have to be careful to also be proportionate. So then when you've got the head of state talking to our president saying, you know, you're going to throw this whole company out of business. You're going to lose a lot of business in the United States. And guess what, Mr. President? If you do that, I'm going to be under, under uh, huge pressure to respond in kind, which means disproportionately. Um, I really wish you could take another look at that. So some people take a look, and the president says, yeah, that's crazy. Rain it back. And, poor, and, and Wilbur Ross, who's been told for all this time, be tough, be tough, be tough, be tough, maximum penalty, suddenly, never mind, rethink this, yeah. find a way, find a way, find a way. Yeah. So I, 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 think there's, I think there's a lot here that we, we don't understand. And if you're a, 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 a major phone manufacturer in the U.S., you might have thought, look at this, We're gonna, they're going to run ZTE out of business. I don't even think they know that. Um, uh, suddenly realize, yeah, that was never really in the cards. So maybe we thought we oh, had wait, something. But, wait a minute. But, the, but there's wait, no wait. basis here for a lot of indignation wait, by U.S. manufacturers wait, wait. given the kinds of penalties that were imposed. Alan, if you're a Avaya, if you're a Cisco, if you're a Mitel, and you are manufacturing telecommunications systems and you see ZTE – being put up on the ropes in your own government, Avaya was on the verge of bankruptcy, and yet our own government didn't bail them out. And this is not a bailout. This is not a bailout. They paid a one point two billion dollar fine. That's not they a bailout. What they what they also did was were told basically you can't buy the stuff you need to put into phones. To, to to be competitive in the ever-evolving phone marketplace. And I think on reconsideration, they thought, you know something? That penalty is too harsh. So I don't see a lot of U.S. companies saying, playing such favoritism. It's more a political argument. It's more you're going to hear politicians talking about it. But I think that, again, this is a hunch. This is based on all my experience and, and not, you know, not having all the details in this particular case. Um, it looks really bad. It, it's an embarrassment to the Commerce Department and to the Secretary. Um, but but uh, uh, it, 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 let's be open to the possibility that he overstepped logic. He overstepped proportionality here and now has to rein it back. Um, 
So I, I'm just, you know, I've <laughs> I've kind of speculated myself way out on a limb here, just just uh, uh, with, without without a lot of info. But but those penalties, he, you know, they <laughs> they didn't they didn't take they, they didn't return the fine. They just basically he, said. Maybe we need to figure out how they can continue to operate. And maybe instead of a seven-year uh, uh, prohibition, for example, they might say, guess what? Not only do you have to, to – you, you've paid this fine or you have to pay it, um, but for six months you can't get the, the, the latest stuff. That would be significant. I mean, it, Dan it's just seven Dan years back with us. puts you out of business. Right. Dan Littner is back with us. What say you? I have absolutely no idea why the president did what he did. Uh, the 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 idea of even using the phraseology that he did about it cost the Chinese jobs. Really? That's a problem that the American voter cares a whole lot about? Um, uh, I, I don't recall that being said at any of the Trump rallies, uh, make China great again. Even though, you know, on the inside of those Make America Great Again hats, I suspect a lot of them were made in China. But uh, okay. that said, I, I, I can't report that the national security element of the ban seems legitimate to me. But, again, that there's something else, some other inside baseball part that isn't quite uh, readily apparent. Right. Well, let me – we've got a caller on the line. Let me go to that. Caller from the 910 area code. You're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Hi, Justin. This is uh, Thor, a uh, great fan of the show. Um, I was wondering, one of your guests spoke about the uh, proportional response. What is the value of maintaining proportionality with China um, when it seems like they're not playing by the same set of rules as we are, which I know is a cliched argument, but is proportionality in this one case going to buy us the goodwill that we need on all the other issues, such as intellectual property and cybercrime and so forth? So, yeah, uh, let me respond, Justin. We, we're at the front end of kind of this big, large um, uh, new conversation, renegotiation, where the president has threatened to impose tariffs on um, as much as $100 billion worth of, of Chinese imports. The Chinese have, have put out a list of all of the sensitive uh, imports that, that they have, particularly in the agricultural sector. Um, this is heavy, high-stakes stuff for many parts of America. And what we don't want to do is muck up those big, large conversations with a relatively small deal, which, you know, I'm not saying a billion dollars uh, in fines and, and, and so on is not small, um, but, but uh, we, we want to be tough, but we want to be smart. I was talking about proportionality because I think as, as, the more I understand this deal, that, that, that for kind of political reasons, we were oh, – we, we were – going to the extremes in this particular instance of the allowable sanctions, but in so doing, we were messing up the environment in which these much more important, bigger conversations are going to occur. So 
that it, it, it you, what you don't want to do is give the other guys some heavy duty talking points about how unfair you are before you get into the big stuff. And it's the big stuff that matters the most. So, um, uh, your, your point's well taken that we've we've got a host of issues with the Chinese, a host of problems with the Chinese and Chinese behavior. Um, this is not at the heart of those. This one um, but the, but uh, Alan, is not Alan, insignificant. Let me, let me interject. Alan, let me interject because it seems to me that we're actually rewarding bad behavior. I mean – Violation of sanctions. You, I don't know Kimber. why you keep thinking that a billion two dollar fine is rewarding bad behavior. It's not. It's a massive <clears throat> penalty for 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 this company. But it was, in addition to that penalty, we were saying, and you can't buy the stuff you need to to stay in the marketplace. Oh, we're, then, we're, then we were not trying to. We weren't trying to impose the death sentence on this company. And it appears that that's what we, in fact, have done. So now we're trying to figure out how to back, a, back, back it off a bit so that it right. can survive, weakened, chastened, hopefully, and aware that, that there's a heavy cost to be paid if, if, you, if you lie to us and if you, if you start uh, cozying up to Iran and North Korea. But let's face it, those are not big markets for state-of-the-art um, uh, equipment. They're 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 paying a billion dollar fine for who knows what. You know, fifty, a hundred million dollars right. worth of business, two hundred million. I don't know. This is not small stuff. There's no great reward here. It's just that instead of right. putting them completely out of business, we're 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 being asked. Uh, I, I totally agree with the point Dan made though when he said it was unfortunate the president talked about it's going to cost the Chinese a lot of jobs. Like who cares? And, right. and I agree with that. that was not the kind of argument. But my guess is that, that, that Xi told President Trump face-to-face, among other things, this is going to cost a lot, of, a lot of jobs, and that's a political problem for me. And the president, you know, with his level of, of, of non-filtering like, and, and lack of, of, like of understanding of these things, just sort of threw that out, and that became part of the narrative. That was stupid. That was right. Like, yeah, but, the other part, but the other part of the narrative that we're not get, getting, and this is Trump, the negotiator, and he seems to do this quite often. Even though some of his arguments that he throws out are straw man arguments, the currency manipulation, the Chinese jobs stuff, and I'm talking about the Chinese stealing our jobs, that argument, that based on Trump's argument, in my mind, a great negotiator, once setting this up and when you're in the power position, you trade away those arguments for something. Trump had some real power behind the words because he was got elected with it, and he's by far the most powerful Republican. The entire Republican caucus is scared of the Trump people. So what did the president do first with the currency manipulation argument? Again, regardless, we're not talking about the merit of the argument. We're just talking about the argument itself. And now the this issue with this Chinese company, he simply gave it away for nothing, which is what is the biggest, most inexplicable thing, other than if he thinks that you know, Xi now likes him, so that's enough. The country got nothing out of the deal, but President Trump has his, his, his new friend as the pr- premier of China. 
That seems to be the only thing that's been gotten out of the NBC. And well, so, and so yeah, we're going to save all these. I got to push back a little giants. bit on that. I, I, I'm no defender of 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 the Trumps of of the president's uh, uh, negotiating strategy much of the time. Um, I, I I think there though in this particular case, um, it it may have dawned on him that. He, he may well have already heard some criticism of the nature of this penalty. And I don't know. Um, wouldn't surprise me, though, if before he sits down and talks to Xi, hopefully he gets at least a briefing and he might pick up one or two of the points. And they say he wants to talk to you about this. He's going to ask you about that. The president would say, so what's, what, what's that all about? And I'd say, well, yeah, I think we got a little carried away. Um, and, and the president decides to follow his gut instinct, which was, um, hey, maybe if I give him something here, then I can hold hold him to that later. It's not conventional. It's not the way we normally work. But but to simply say he got nothing, although I agree, it looks like it. Or worse, and I don't know if you were on earlier, Dan, when I talked about this half a billion dollar investment that that China made in a Singapore project that the Trump Organization has been involved in, and how horrendously bad that so, looks. So I mean, you hate to think that. That the thing that the, that the the thing that the president got out of it was <laughs> closing that deal. I just think that in his way of operating, cutting a deal like this can pay benefits down the road. I don't know, but I'm I'm uncomfortable oh, saying he got nothing because he, I think, probably thinks he did get something, and maybe he so did. We're, so we're facing we're facing our economic, foreign policy, and national security in telecom based on a bromance and a possible violation of the renumerations clause? No, I think we over I think we overstepped our bounds on on the penalty imposed and we're scaling it back. I think that's what actually happened here. Um but but uh I I just we don't have the facts. Uh well, we're going to let that be the never stopped us before. Well, we got we got we got one caller real quick. We want to take this caller. Caller from the two hundred six. You're on with backroom politics. What's your question? Uh, yes, gentlemen. In the world that we live in right now, in the United States, it's so divided, and uh, the information that people get aren't necessarily from uh, registered. Uh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. One second. I said registered, which I didn't mean to me uh, say. But uh, actual broadcasters, they don't get their news from actual broadcasters anymore. They get it from an array of ideas. How do you think we can patch up the way America is right now? And what do you see, where do you see us in the future in 10 years? Interesting question. He comes in at 10 minutes before the end of the show. Uh, hold on. Hold on, caller. We're going, to put you, we're going to put you back on hold. You can listen to the answers. Hold on. Uh, Dan Littner, I'll start with you. How do you take that one in two minutes or less? I mean, it's pretty straightforward and something we've known for a long time, that people have to learn how to consume media. And I'm not saying that, you know, like learn how to turn on the TV, but feel past judgment on what sources you're getting information from and whether there might not, whether there may or may not be a bias. And there always is, even the most upright, upstanding journalists or whoever's conveying information, there's always some sort of bias there. 
The only question is whether or not the consumer is aware enough to know that they're getting that bias and whether or not they're informed enough to know they should get information from more than one source. Uh, Even the best of the best get it wrong from time to time, and sometimes the worst of the worst, I'm looking at the National Enquirer, get it right from time to time. So it's it's a matter of the the media consumer and the news consumer being being wise and intelligent consumers of the information that they get. That's how we fix it. Right. Right. Um, Alan Moore, two minutes or less. Yeah, um, I, I agree with with what Dan said. I think we have to recognize and be a little humble about. Uh, I'm not saying Dan wasn't uh, about about not knowing quite where this is going to all end up. We have some really high-quality national newspapers. Now, people, we could debate that, but in, but uh, as a consumer of the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, some, re- some large regional papers, I, I grew up in Southern California, the LA Times used to be a great paper. Um, we had three major networks, and they all had pretty good news organizations. And then technology changed, and the country... Uh, started looking elsewhere for information, and the newspapers lost uh, uh, print advertising and the revenue that sustained large news operations. And meanwhile, the Internet showed up, and we had a whole bunch of new uh, enterprises. It's sorting itself out. We learned in this last election that, and, and, and before and since that, that, that there are ways to use social media to manipulate, to distort um, I don't know where we're ultimately going to end up, but it won't be back where we were. We're not going to have world-class, wealthy newspapers that can provide, or for that matter, broadcast uh, right. journalists. Right. We're going to get bits and pieces making it all the more important to do what Dan said, which is don't rely on one source. Right. Don't be lazy. Pay some yeah. attention. Be skeptical. Um, or, or we're a long way from there right now. Or I, I can sum this up in 30 seconds or less. Just listen to Backroom Politics every Tuesday or download it as a podcast from backroompolitics.org. Hey, uh, with that, we've got so much to talk about. We did not talk about one subject that I wanted to deal with, and we may deal with it because apparently this is not going away anytime soon is this issue uh, involving the uh, John McCain, he's dead statement put out by a a White House comms uh, operative. Um, Two questions. I'm going to ask Dan Lipner one question. I'm going to ask Alan the other. Alan, should she lose her job for that? No. So this was this was a stupid, dark humor comment made in the privacy of a of a of a group of staff. Um, I'm guessing we've all said stupid things in small staff meetings, um, and I don't think you should get fired for something you say behind closed doors, even if it's black, even if it's insensitive, even if it's stupid. What what the, the there's two big problems. One. Who put that that comment out into the public domain and this whole issue of leaks in the White House, which is a huge problem um, uh, for for the White House? One and two, what is this business about never apologizing? You know, the president doesn't apologize, and so there's this mindset in the White House 
that we don't apologize for stuff, even if it's a massive screw-up, even if it's an embarrassment. And I feel sorry for this woman who said this thing, who, who allocations and reports would like to apologize, but she's sort of been forbidden from apologizing because we don't apologizing. That's too rigid. That's stupid. So th- that, that's my take on it. Yeah. Dan Lipner? Yeah, I mean, historically, the, the, at a minimum, you apologize and say, and say exactly what Alan said. You know, this is a, a moment, that, something that shouldn't have been said in, in private. And obviously, we, you know, are wishing uh, Senator McCain well and, as, you know, speedy progress in his recovery. But none of that is what this White House does. And, you know, firing an, firing an aide for that kind of thing is not unheard of because it, it says you did something and allowed you uh, get past the issue. This White House does none of that, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. They, they don't follow well, any of the conventional rules on how you make this thing go away. So instead of it just being a one-day thing of one person saying something stupid, now it's going on a number of days. The McCains are still pissed off, and we're talking about it here. If it, if the aide had either apologized or been fired, it would have been over. But well, that, it's not a malicious firing; it's a firing of convenience. That stuff happens in Washington. Yeah, I mean, well, if, you fire, if you fire in a if you fire in a case like this, something that that by all indications was just some unfortunate dark humor in a in the privacy of a small meeting, and that becomes once it becomes public, a firing offense. Um, then watch out, everybody. It's bad enough all the leaks that are going on, all the backstabbing right. that's going on. But if the thought no, is, no, I, I, not I, only I can I discredit, I discredit that, this person, but I can maybe get somebody fired for for, yeah, for more, I mean, on more than one occasion. In, on more than one occasion in politics, for various different things of work and whatnot, I have heard bosses will say to me and others, you know, nothing against what you're doing, but just you know, if any of this comes out, I'm going to have to fire you. I mean, that's again, it's the cost of doing business and not necessarily malicious. It is a Look, tool in the toolbox. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I, well, I will sit there and, and, and I've met Kat, Kelly Sadler. Uh, I think she's good at what she does. I think she's a she's an effective comms person. She's an effective political comms operative. Uh, I think that she let her mouth get ahead of her brain. Uh, do I think she should publicly apologize? Absolutely. Do I think that she? Do I think that the White House should offer a public apology? Absolutely. Should she lose her job? I, I, I'm not so sure. I want her to lose her job, but I think that you know. Again, there are other tools in the in the White House serve at the pleasure of the President OPM handbook. Uh, you know, you could suspend her without pay. There's all kinds of stuff. But I think losing her job would be extreme for, you know, look, we've all said stupid stuff. Some of us have said stupid stuff in public. Uh, and we've been forgiven. We've also apologized. I think the bigger thing is the fact that we're still talking about the story uh, a week out tells me that the White House is tone deaf. This story ends that evening doesn't go past the 11 o'clock news cycle, doesn't go past Brian Williams or Don Lemon if the White House apologizes that evening. This ends. But they've managed to just keep the fire on it and draw more attention to the ineptness of the comms team at the White House. And I feel, you know, I feel bad well, for, I feel bad, for, I feel bad for Raj. I think Raj is the most competent out of all of them. 
Well, I feel sorry for anybody in the White House that has to operate in an environment where if you and you would like personally to apologize and are are prohibited from doing it, I feel for all of them. And that's a dangerous mindset to have for uh, for for a White House. Right. Okay, we got we got two minutes left. I want to bring in Audrey. Audrey. Oh. Uh, speaking of in, in speaking of you know civility and kindness in politics, let's talk about our death pool. Uh, who won last week? <laughs> yeah, maybe we need, <laughs> maybe we need be, to uh, kill the death pool. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nobody. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's go through. No, I mean at this point, at this point, it's it, we're too far down this rabbit hole. People like it apparently. Uh, who, I'm going to start off. Uh, Alan Moore, who do you pick? Who's going to who's going to leave the administration next? So, so I'm letting my money ride on Scott Pruitt. Okay, Dan Lipner, director of the EPA, head of, administrator of the EPA. Yeah. Dan Lipner? I'm sticking I'm sticking with Sarah Huckabee. She's got the worst job in politics right now. <laughs> <laughs> Who did I pick last week? Uh Emmett Flood. I'm gonna stick with Emmett Flood. Oh. I think Emmett Flood's out the door here at the end of the week. Oh, I'm still gonna value that in. So here's anyway. The, I, I think he's not in the door. I think he's not in the door till May thirty one, but but we agreed I that if he never he'll, comes he'll, that that he'll, counts. He'll, yeah, he'll 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 still not take the job, I think. Anyway, we got thirty seconds. On behalf of Alan Moore, Dan Littner, uh, our producer, Audrey Howerton, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back last week live on the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics. Uh live on Blog Talk Radio. You can also download our podcast at backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics, follow us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash backroom politics radio. We'll see you next week, America. Have a great Tuesday. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.